everyone, and welcome back to Radical Hope Radio. I'm Liz Bell, the CEO of Radical Hope, and I'm going to be joined in a minute by a very special guest. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, Radical Hope was founded back in 2018 by Pam and Phil Martin, shortly after they lost their son, Chris, to a suicide. Um, He was a junior at Gonzaga University and experienced a lot of the social and emotional challenges and isolation feelings that many young adults across the country and around the world are feeling these days, and particularly over the last year or so with the with the lockdowns and the, and the consequences of COVID and the, and the pandemic. Um, we are committed to working with premier partners and organizations across the country that deliver on our core mission, which is really improving connectivity and engagement and empowering young adults so that they can live full and productive lives. So today, We are joined by Linda Mills, uh, whose bio is so long, I'm not going to read it. Um, Most importantly, uh, she has been an invaluable partner to me and to Radical Hope as we have developed our new Radical Health Campus program. But her her background and her wealth of experience, both academically um, and as a producer um, and as a member of the broader academic uh, family around the country, really is is why today you're going to hear from her, um, why we're working so closely with her. So um, Linda, welcome. And I can read your title, but I first want to say hello and thank you for making the time. Hi, Liz. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, you know, uh, to be very uh, specific, you're the vice chancellor and senior vice provost for global programs and university life at NYU, where you oversee all of student life and a global portfolio that includes oversight of strategic planning for study away at NYU. There are thousands of students you're responsible for. Um, How do you do that? And what got you to this point uh, today? Yeah, I mean, I I think my own training as a social worker sets me up well for being able to think strategically, which is really the essence of what the focus of my work is. Um, But how do we think about the evolving needs of our students, and they have changed over the years. Even between the time I started doing this work, which was around 9-11 here in New York City, and now so much has changed, and we see the onset of mental health concerns and issues being ever more present for students. Back then, in 2003, 2004, NYU saw a number of suicides within one year, which really captured our attention and forced us to look hard at how we provide services to our students and to be sure that we create the safety net that is so essential for this generation. Have you seen, so, you know, that's now almost 20 years ago, 17 years ago. Have you seen a really big difference in how the students ask for help or look for help or not? Um, and what, and, and, and how do you talk to the students to figure out what kind of services to provide? Or, you know, why don't you tell everybody how you go about this? Because you've put together a, a really a premier infrastructure to deal with student wellness that, that we could all learn from. Yeah, I mean, I think, Um, over the period of time that I've done this work, these 20 years, 
initially a lot of the programming and response and the um, kinds of services that we provided were motivated and animated by an internal group of mental health experts that asked the question, how best do we respond to the mental health of our students? Over time, and particularly over the last five to 10 years, students have become really good advocates for both knowing what they need in terms of mental health and how best the university can respond. So it has really shifted from a responsibility of mine, my office, and the elaborate group of student affairs professionals, including clinicians, um, to a shared responsibility with students to make sure that we're being responsive over time to what their unique needs have become. Do you find, are the students talking to each other about what they need, or is it really more that they're coming to the school and relying on the school for help? Because we've talked about this, you know, I, what's been interesting through the work that we're doing together on radical health, which we can talk about in more detail in a minute, but the discussion groups that we've been running for this program have been so enlightening to hear, you know, 18 year old students come forward, perfect strangers, 10 students in a group and be so vulnerable is thank heavens they're doing it but it's so different from certainly when you and I were in school but even I think from 15 20 years ago yeah I mean I think what's happened is mental health and the whole idea of mental health has become integrated into young people's lives at a much earlier age and so students by the time they come to college at 18 have already been talking about their mental health I mean, if you have a school shooting on a campus, for example, the devastating event, such a devastating event, that students have no choice but to confront the complexity of that. If you have COVID, if you have shootings in your community of African-American men and women um, by the police, as these events unfold, students come to understand that they're actually impacting their mental health. And they understand that at younger and younger ages, painfully. And so they get a language, they acquire a language and a capacity for being able to talk about their mental health and the impact of those traumas on them much earlier. So by the time they're coming to college and you throw them in a room with 10 other people, they actually do have a language for talking about how their mental health is being affected by something. And so I just think that we're starting much earlier. We also identify as clinicians mental health issues much earlier, right? It comes to our attention earlier. So I think by the time people are coming to college, they both know more of what they need, but also we listen better because we have seen the developmental aspects of mental health across the generation. So, you know, one of the things that you've said months ago when we first announced our partnership here um, that you've seen on, uh, you know, with your students and students across the country is that they're performing at ridiculously high levels academically, but they are really struggling otherwise, socially, emotionally, their mental, well, overall mental wellness. And, you know, you, you said, you know, they know how to do school, but they don't really know how to do a lot of other things. And that's what we found, you know, was we started to shape the content for this whole radical health experience, you know, we really looked at what kind of basic skills, fundamental skills are these students lacking that would help them 
just not just thrive, but survive early on as they go through this big transition, right? Because college is such a big transition time. And over the last year and a half, you, you know, you can't compare it to anything that's gone on. So, so what do you mean by that? It's interesting that you say that they're taught, they know what they need, but how are we getting at them? Yeah. So that's a great, great question because I think students have a language for identifying that it hurts, but they don't necessarily have a methodology for addressing that hurt. And in the past, our country has focused on clinical services. And often what that means is either individualized therapeutic services or group therapy, um, if there's a kind of shared experience or a shared history of uh, trauma in a particular area where people come together to address it. What I think is, is happening is that we have um, come to understand that that peer work together is much more than just clinically driven, that students can be supportive of each other, but they also need to know when they're in trouble enough that professional services are necessary. And I think this is the untangling that's been happening over the last 20 years. So there's a kind of language for hurting that's more acceptable than it was certainly 20 years ago. And once you have that language, then you have to refine what you're asking for. And I think this is where the partnership between the clinical community, the mental health community, the experts coming together with students, and also identifying a much broader set of options for supporting students through difficult times. So it's not enough just to be on one, in one-on-one -on -one therapy or even in a group that's supportive. And this is where radical health really fits the bill. It provides students with a set of skills, everyday skills, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's paying attention to what you eat and when you sleep and how you manage your money, all those kind of core things that we, we sort of took for granted, but are absolutely crucial. And once they go out the door, let's say you stop sleeping because you're too busy doing school and you haven't paid attention to that. That can be devastating to a student's life. That can bring on depression. That can bring on anxiety. And all of a sudden, they're in a crisis when paying attention to a core need like sleep could have addressed it if they were aware that that's what they needed to pay attention to. No, it's so interesting. Uh, I spoke to a clinical director at, at another school a few months ago when we were first getting started. And he told me a situation exactly like you just described, Lynn. He said he had a student come, he said they'll come in, you know, on a Thursday and look like they haven't slept for three nights and they'll be collapsed on the floor, complete exhaustion. And he'll start asking very simple questions. When's the last time you ate? Did you sleep last night? Have you been partying too much? Or are you burning the candle at both ends? Cause you've got a school, but you also want to have a social life. And he said these, they'll have these aha moments like, well, actually, no, I, I haven't actually had a real meal in the last three days. Well, no, I can't sleep. I got I got a test, plus I wanted to go. And these simple things that, you know, students, young adults don't ask themselves. And, and what's been so interesting as we've gotten the feedback from the students who are participating in Radical Health is that they want more information on self-care. They actually realize, wow. It's, it always reminds me of that situation on the plane where they say, take the oxygen first before you give it to the passenger next to you. It's like, if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to be no use to anybody else or to yourself. So the fact that they're becoming aware of it and asking for it is encouraging. 
It's encouraging. Completely encouraging. And this is where the language comes together with being able to articulate what their needs are and then us being able to be responsive to supporting them in meeting those needs. Technology is the other more complicated one because it can have, right, it's a two-sided issue. I was going to ask you about that, so I'm glad you brought it up. Yes. So on the one hand, technology can be incredibly helpful. So one of the things that NYU introduced was a text messaging um, engagement process by which students can text a clinician to ask questions about, well, you know, I've been having a really difficult time. What does that mean? How do I, you know, meet my needs in this way? I'm not ready for therapy. Therapy is not okay in my culture. And so we developed this text messaging method so that students can get more comfortable with this idea of interacting with a clinical expert, but without having to come in or commit to therapy yet. So that's a really positive development on the clinical, on, on the technology side. The less positive development, of course, is this notion of the virtual self, which is I'm going to present myself in the most beautiful, relaxed, perfectionistic way. And yet on the inside, I'm crumbling. I feel lonely. I don't know what to do with myself. I don't sleep enough. I don't eat enough. I don't, you know, all the things that bring on those mental health challenges. And so technology has this dual side that students often see, um, you know, which is why we need to get the benefits of technology, but we also need to help students understand that technology has significant limits. And if you're going to use it to create a kind of virtual self that is not authentic, this is the self-care question, that feels inauthentic, not helpful. Yeah. And and do you feel, you know, they're 18 and 19-year-olds, frankly, they're people our age who still are very focused on social media. And to your point, they've got their outside face and their inside real self. Have you seen any progress with that with the students now? I mean, now that there's so much more a really awareness of the damages of the social, of social media and what it, what it, what it's done. We know, you know, scores of stories of young people taking their own lives because they've been bullied online or they feel inadequate or, you know, there are apps like, am I pretty? These young girls are completely ruined by this notion that they're supposed to look like, you know, Farrah Fawcett in the old days. Yeah, I think that we are just coming into an awareness of the negative sides of technology and that um, students have to see it as this duality and young people have to see it as this duality and they have to hold both at the same time. How do I use technology to improve my self-care, to advance my self-care, but also how do I actually recognize when it's counterproductive? How do I get off it? And in some respects, this might be one of the more prominent lessons of COVID because technology has become so centralized to people's lives that, for example, if you're online taking classes and then you have this kind of virtual self you're trying to project, it's kind of too much. And at some moment, students say enough, right? They say enough. Yeah. And so there has, I mean, maybe that's the benefit of um, the fact that we're so immersed in technology. We have to be much more conscious of the benefits and the disadvantages of it. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. You know, um, going back to when we first met, which was about three years ago now, 
I remember talking to you about the Global Spiritual Life Center at NYU. And one of the things that struck me so much about that was you, you said thousands of students come every week voluntarily and they participate in some form of mindfulness, meditation, spiritual, spirituality, spiritual, you know, classes and conversations. And, you know, first of all, I find that so encouraging because we read a lot now about godless, godless society and no one believes in this, but spirituality can mean anything. So can you talk about that and, and how you've actually used that almost as a, as a springboard to inform other activities that you offer to, to students. And it's become a model for schools all across the country. Yeah. So, you know, if you build it, they will come. Um, John Sexton, the president of NYU, when we built Global Spiritual Life, had himself a very spiritual life. And he understood from the inside the importance of building out a space for spiritual development, spiritual life. That's not something you often think about on a college campus. On the other hand, what we came to realize is as we started to collect the students, you know, the variety of ways in which students manifest their spirituality, spirituality from mindfulness all the way to a deep spiritual practice, Jewish, Muslim, and every religion on top of that, that you started to realize this was really a crucial dimension of our of young people's lives. We, before COVID, we had 5,000 students coming, flocking to some version of spiritual life um, at NYU. And it became so evident that the spiritual dimension of this was also a wellness dimension. And that, you know, for, for a long time now, mindfulness has been shown to provide uh, support for students who are dealing with anxiety, sleeplessness, all the uh, issues that young people are, are needing to address. It was bringing together the notions of spirituality, including mindfulness, together with the more recognized spiritual practices such as religion to think about it much more holistically and what does that bring to a student's life it can bring that sense of connectedness it can bring that sense of calm it can bring that sense of community all the things that are associated with positive mental health can you talk about of many so Linda, you know, I just I'll back up for a second and, and you know just repeat what I said earlier, which is that you know in addition to your unique and deep academic background, you also have been a producer, an award-winning producer for many many years, documentaries, short films, some longer ones, and I think the intersection of all of your work is what makes you so uniquely effective. And I know you're particularly proud of your work with of many and on of many. So could you talk about that? Because I think it will give our listeners a really good window into how you approach all, all the things that you do. Um, I moved to New York City about nine months before 9-11. And I moved to downtown. I moved three blocks from the World Trade Center. My son was in his third day of kindergarten on the day. And so 9-11 has been an incredibly monumentous for me event that redefined essentially my own history. My mother is a Holocaust survivor um, and she came to the United States at the age of 14 from Vienna. 
uh, by herself. Her father had been picked up on Crystal Nacht. He ends up surviving. They escape, the whole family, except my great-grandmother who dies at Riga. And my orientation in the world was very much as the child of a Holocaust survivor. After 9-11 happened, and I witnessed at really close range what was happening to our Muslim students at NYU, it became really important to me that we support our Muslim students in this post 9-11 moment. They were experiencing violence on the street, uh, not unlike what we're seeing uh, against Asian Americans in New York City, the kind of violence we're seeing, and the kind of violence that Jews experience um, across uh, the United States in terms of anti-Semitic attacks. What, is what was obvious at the time is that we didn't and hadn't yet built a strong enough connection between the Jewish and Muslim students at NYU. And this was the moment. And it was the moment because the Jewish students deeply appreciated the experience, the negative experiences that Muslim students were having and the importance of, of allyship, which it wasn't called back then, but the importance of supporting Muslim students in the experiences, the negative experiences they were having in the United States. And so we brought the Jewish and Muslim community together to ask the question, how do we support each other during this time? And it was a remarkable moment of coming together, uh, especially given a complex history between Jewish and Muslim students, especially on college campuses over many years. So the rabbi and imam at NYU, Khalid Latif is the imam, and the rabbi Yehuda Sarna, both of whom are still at NYU, started to build a friendship and model that friendship for the Muslim and Jewish communities. Mm -hmm. And that resulted in remarkable work, which we called of many and continue to call of many, um, inspired in part by the fact that Chelsea Clinton was at NYU during that time and helped create this community between Jewish and Muslim students. So together, we then sort of went on this journey of filming the experiences of both the friendship of the imam and rabbi, but also of the students who followed in their footsteps and believed so strongly in their religious leader that it led to a kind of burgeoning of a relationship that you wouldn't otherwise have seen. The healing that happens between those two communities because of that both leadership but also what happens between has been truly stunning and remarkable and for me has um, given me the kind of hope that we need in a moment where the world is so divided. And are you finding now, back to the students, that they're open to this? You know, as we put together some of the elements of radical health, you know, we talked a lot about skill building around empathy and active listening and um, frankly, just common respect and courtesy for other people's point of view, other people's backgrounds, other people's perspective. Do you see progress when you get down to the one-on-one, -on -one, at the one-on-one -on -one level, how the students are doing? And I, I know everyone would love to hear what you hear from your colleagues across the country who have the same role you do at their schools, whether they're suburban, rural, big universities or very small, small colleges. You know, what are you seeing now with the students? So it's hard to tell because we've been in kind of COVID, this COVID, year-long COVID moment, if you could call it. It feels like one, one moment after another um, lined up to add up to 14 months, which is, you know, shocking in and of itself. So it's hard to know what's going to happen when students come back to campus and what that will mean. 
But I think we can and have witnessed uh, so much of the division in this country. And the question is, how can universities help facilitate honest, open, difficult dialogue in a way that just doesn't cancel at the end of it? And I think that is a huge challenge. And there are so many outstanding student affairs professionals who are committed to creating the conditions to have the hard conversations, which is what college is about. It's a learning process. And if not here and now, when? Um, but how do you do that without making pe people or without people feeling not seen? So you have to do that in a way that people feel seen and heard and yet enough openness and space so that that learning can happen and at the end of it, people can come together. It sounds so kumbaya and I don't mean it to be because the work is hard on the one hand and yet I have to believe that the divided world that seems to be certainly is true on the internet that that divided world, it's possible to come together and we can learn from each other so that the world can get better and feel less divided and more accepting and more of a recognition of the differences that we have and how to move you know, closer to each other, but also how to move forward in a way that recognizes the pain, the differences and the history and in a way that comes together. Well, you know, as we put together the, um, the different elements for the for the for the four weeks of, of radical health, you know, we looked a lot at self-advocacy too, knowing yourself. You know, you're 18 years old, 19 years old, you're a first year student at school. You know, what conditions do you need to thrive? Who are you? What are your you know what are your values now? Um, what how do you make good decisions or not good decisions? How do you how do you see and hear other people? So much right into Two side, there are two sides to this. One is knowing yourself well enough and being secure enough so that you're not so critical of others, right? It just gets back to the sort of the self-care and then connecting with others and engaging with the rest of the world. And so much of this, like you said, these are tough times and these are hard conversations, but so much of this starts with really knowing yourself. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. It's knowing yourself. It's also feeling like you have an equally compelling goal of articulating your story so people hear it, understand it, embrace it, respect it, and um, are there to support you. But it's also being able to listen to other people's stories that don't feel like your own and feel very different from yours, but maybe equally compelling, but in a, in a new way that maybe you hadn't heard before. And that, for me, again, is what, in essence, college creates, right? Especially at NYU, we have 20 to 25% of our population is international students, are international students. Um, our students come from every state in the union. That means your starting off point is an incredible amount of diversity. You add on top of that the large percentage of students from communities of color, disadvantaged students who historically may 
in their family be the first person to go to college. If you start to put all of that together into a fabric of what is a university, you're going to meet people who are going to trigger your buttons, who are going to, you know, send you reeling, who are going to, who you're going to say, whoa, I can't even be in a room with that person. Well, if we can't learn that, that hard skill in college, you're not prepared for the world because it's coming at you because that's what the world is. That's right. That's right. You know, Linda, you man, NYU managed to bring most students back to campus over the last year, which is really um, a feat. That I don't, and you yourself managed to do that. Of course, you've got a huge team behind you, but I, I know how committed you were to doing that. How how has COVID affected the students? It, you know, beyond the headlines that we read about more emotional isolation and their social, you know, there's no they can't socialize. Have you seen? A, a significant consequence or impact on students right now because of what's gone on over the last year? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, my first reaction is that COVID has dramatically affected people's emotional health and that the lockdowns in their various forms, even if they just went to class, that the consequences on their lives of creating a smaller and smaller and smaller world we have not yet seen what that looks like. In other words, we don't even understand the consequences. And then take into account the half a million people who have died and how that relates to each and every person in this country. So chances are people know someone who knows someone. So that's a whole other effect in terms of the just dramatic impact of loss. And so even if you don't, didn't know somebody personally, you knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And then the final issue is just the health consequences. I mean, at any given time over the course of these months, we had 2,000 people in quarantine or isolation. What did that mean for them? And I was kind of at the forefront of, Let's try and rebuild this out for people in a way that helps them feel as though they're going to use the time productively. That's not always so easy, right? How do we help people productively use time that they have to stay home and they're probably at home alone? And so maybe there's even a positive a benefit to that aspect of it, but we also saw this sense of panic and isolation and what impact did that have just simply on those who had to isolate or quarantine? So there are so many effects we have not yet seen, Liz, that we will see as we turn the, as we turn the COVID corner. You know, you and I have talked about um, the work you've done in suicide, around suicide, you know, on campus and also just as a leader um, for schools across the country, you know. And just the responsibility of, of the media or the irresponsibility uh, of the coverage of suicides, you know, and, and the whole, what we've learned, what you've known, you know, that suicide is a contagion. These clusters happen. We have these young adults. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you deal, how do you um, prevent that from happening on a college campus when you're such a, you know, a small, tight community? I don't care how big the school is. It's still a family and a community. Um, what has that been like over the last year as we've seen the statistics around really unprecedented levels of, of suicide? 
overdoses, um, some accidental, but many just from, you know, years of substance use disorder. So publicizing suicide in any way, shape, or form inside a community like ours, uh, announcing it, memorializing it, has or can have the effect of creating that contagion. So we are just adamant about not contributing to a contagion. And oftentimes that hurts people who want to celebrate the life of the person who took their life. On the other hand, it is absolutely clear that our response in relation to not publicizing a a student death by suicide is so fundamental to addressing the needy, sorry, sorry, is so fundamental to addressing the students who have the most needs and who are the most vulnerable. So it is crucially important that the people who are silent and suffering are not people who are going to be the people advocating for a memorial. They're looking for a sign, potentially, to take a step. And we are going to be damn sure that we're not giving them that sign. And I think the media has gotten better and more sensitivity to this issue. But the bottom line is, after Robin Williams, Williams after Robin Williams committed suicide and the amount of publicity related to that created a contagion that was so far reaching that it really needed to remind our it needed to remind us that we are in the driver's seat for preventing suicide and we can be very influential not all the way right we can be incredibly um What we do after a suicide matters and can be responsive to addressing the needs of the most vulnerable in our community. And when you, there's so perfectly said, and when we first put our heads together around developing radical health, you know, our commitment has been, was and it remains, you know, helping these young adults before they reach a crisis point. What can we do so they don't get to that point so that they can cope when, whether it's they're seeing stuff on television, like you just described around Robin Williams or other suicides or feeling their own isolation and, and, and despair. And our, you know, our focus has been you know, as much on the positive as it has been on the negative. What impact can radical hope have? What impact can you have at NYU? And what, can we share with the rest of the country, campuses everywhere, that will benefit the, the society, these young adults, their families, and their and their school communities? Um, it, it's why we're so grateful to you for leading on this, because the demand is there. We've had schools calling us who, who know about the pilot we ran with you to ask to see the survey data and the result, the feedback from the students and from the administrators like yourself to see well, you know, what specific things can we be doing and should we bring this program on board here on our campus to help these young adults? What's so compelling about radical health from my point of view is that we had a whole set of services to respond to someone in crisis, even somebody who's noticed the crisis and maybe is a three on a scale from one to 10, but they have, we have those services to respond to to that. What we did less well is that kind of affirmative, how do we get way out in front of this so that when that crisis hits, 
you have a set of tools to rely on. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to get into a therapeutic situation that's going to respond to the crisis. I'm not saying that. But you have a set of tools that help ameliorate your suffering right away. And that is attention to sleep. That is using mindfulness techniques. There are a number of these methodologies that most students don't use or even necessarily know about. We talked about earlier, there's a language around mental health, but it's often related to the crisis end of the spectrum. It's not about, okay, wow, I could get way out in front of this well before something happens. And this is what was so compelling about radical health and why it is a game changer in terms of adding to the necessary um, tools that students need in order to address their mental health. Well, you know, at the end of the four weeks of the second pilot that we that we ran at, at, at NYU, we had a little focus group on six, six students to ask what uh, they found most compelling, where we, you know, what they thought we could have done more of or what we could have done better. And one young man said um, that the reason he participated in the program was because about a year ago, he had a panic attack. And he realized that for all these years, he's gone to the gym to take care of his physical health and that he had never done anything for his mental or emotional health. So that he And so he committed himself to actually find the skills that you just talked about, the tools that could help him so that he knows, wow, this is not a good situation for me, or here are the things that really set me off, or he, oh, oh, I see this sign coming. So um, the, the, these students want it, and you're absolutely right. This is all about getting in on the front end. That's what we're committed to. I know that's what you're committed to, and you've been such a big leader. So um, is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? I've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you, Liz. No, it has been an honor, a pleasure, and truly one of the most rewarding aspects of this year of COVID uh, to be able to do this truly transformative work with Radical Hope and Radical Health. So I just can't thank you enough. Well, thanks. Thanks to you. Um, it's alive and growing and we're going to scale it to students across the country. So we're grateful to you and for your whole team because it was it's been a wonderful group effort. So thank you. Thanks. And I hope you'll join us again. Um, thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Um, Radical Hope Radio podcasts are available anytime at iTunes, Spotify, and uh, Amazon Alexa. Uh, you can allow it in your skill settings. For any more information on Radical Hope, you can visit our website at RadicalHopeFoundation.org and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RadicalHope underscore FDN. Until next time, stay connected, stay safe, and hopeful. You're not alone. Thanks very much. Thank you.